0: Tonight's scripture is coming from Luke 20, verses 20 through 26. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness. And said to them, show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Good evening. Welcome to Regeneration. Let's uh, open up in prayer. Father, thank you for all these folks. Pray, Lord, for blessing upon their lives. Uh, realizing that, Lord, we have many different needs, and uh, we pray, Lord, that those needs somehow are met. Uh, we ask, Holy Spirit, for you to open our eyes, our minds, our hearts to what you have for us. Not necessarily what is coming out of my mouth, but as your Holy Spirit is dynamic and working in the lives of every person here. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you're new to regeneration, we uh, just kind of go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And here we are in Luke chapter 20. And a lot of times somebody will say, oh, you know, how did you know I was going through this or I needed to hear that? The Holy Spirit is at work here and strongly believe that. And so here we are in verses 20 through 26 is what we're going to be talking about. And if you've been with us the past several weeks or actually the past several years, we've been studying the gospel of Luke and um, so here we are in Luke 20, and you'd notice if you've been with us for however long, that the attitude of the antagonist in Jesus' life, the opposition to Jesus, has becoming uh, more and more hostile towards him. And there are these challenges that they are issuing one right after another confronting Jesus and now they're coming to Jesus in the form of these kind of trick questions that are seeking to corner Jesus and to present Him as a fraud because He's getting closer and closer to declaring Himself as the Messiah and they are not liking this at all. So the first confrontation... In this chapter, is actually back in verse 2 when the chief priests, scribes, and the elders came up to Jesus and they said to Him, Tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. Now, keep in mind that if Jesus said God or heaven, they would attack him and they would kill him, and it was just not the right time for that. So Jesus didn't say that, nor would Jesus say man, because if he said, oh, man gave me the authority, it would just be a lie. That's not true. So instead of answering the question outright, because these are kind of no-win answers, either way he goes, these are no-win answers. So he kind of turns the tables on him, not to dodge the question, but because By their answer, they are going to answer their own question. So he goes on to ask them a question. He turns the table and he asks them the question, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And the right answer to that question is the same answer that they were seeking from him. And so instead of saying God or heaven, they said, I don't know. We don't know. And so Jesus said, "Eh, neither will I answer you. And so there's this hostility that is brewing because every time Jesus is being confronted by these guys, He's kind of outsmarting them. He's kind of giving them answers to their questions that aren't kind of helping them corner Jesus. Then Jesus told this parable of the tenants, which they knew was about them. And then as that parable ends in verse 19, it reads this, "...the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Him at that very hour, for they perceived that He told this parable against them, but they feared the people." So you get this sense that this hostility is growing, that it's just just coming to this boiling point. And now here we are in tonight's Scripture, the religious leaders make another attempt to trick Jesus or, or to kind of corner Jesus by this question, verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? And so we'll unpack that a little bit more later on in this message. And the last Trick question in chapter 20 actually comes from the Sadducees, and we'll take a look at that uh, next week. And if you have any question of who the Sadducees are, you can use a little memory thing that I grew up with. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, so that's sad, you see. So that's just how we remembered Sadducees and their thoughts and stuff like that. So they denied the resurrection or a resurrection. And so we'll get into that next week. And I find that kind of fitting because we also have a baptismal next week and talking about resurrection and stuff like that. I just love how the Holy Spirit works these things because we didn't plan that. So it's kind of cool. Now all of these kind of hostile confrontations are just building up to the point where they want to kill Jesus. They want Him out of the picture. And it begs the question... Why? Why would they want to do that? Why would they have all of this premeditated hostility leading to a premeditated murder? Why all this kind of stuff? Well, to get a background as to why, we, we need to look at the history of this, how this has started brewing. We have to look at the starting point. And the starting point to all of this, if you do a word search in terms of Pharisees and Kind of the conflict that arises from them, you'll find that the first time it's shown in the Gospel of Luke is back in chapter 5. So let's go back there. Let's go take a look at chapter 5, starting in verse 17. "...on one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal." And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And this is the key verse into what this conflict is about. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now keep this in mind as we move forward, and, and here we are in chapter 20. The scribes and the Pharisees were the folks who were responsible for answering the questions the people had about the scriptures. So, Rabbi, how do we interpret this? Or you scribes, you've been studying this. What does this mean? And so these rabbis, these scribes, these Pharisees were accustomed to answering questions that the people had about their faith, about the Scriptures. But here they had questions for one another. Who is this guy? What is all this about? Now, why did Jesus forgive the man's sins rather than heal him from his paralysis? Because that's why the friends brought him, right? The friends did not bring him to have his sins forgiven. They brought their paralyzed friend to be healed of his paralysis. So why would Jesus forgive sins rather than physically heal this paralyzed man? And it's kind of odd, don't you think? Like you bring this particular need to Jesus and he doesn't address that. He addresses something else. Now that something else was actually a bigger need that needed to be addressed more so than a physical healing. And so it kind of focuses it back on us. We have a lot of needs. We have needs. And perhaps some of you come here because you have certain needs and and you have those needs met here, whether it's a community, uh, whether you need some friends, uh, whether you need some help with something, uh, some financial assistance, whatever it is, something brings you here that, that is filling some sort of a need. And so know that whatever need that you're bringing here, I'm not belittling it and I'm not saying that it's insignificant. I realize your needs are important, but they're so varied and they don't apply to everyone. But the need that Jesus is addressing here applies to everyone. Everyone has a need to have their sins forgiven. And so Jesus is addressing that We have a need to have our sins forgiven. Jesus didn't address that particular need because He saw a bigger need that needed to be addressed. The forgiveness of sins. And so the religious leaders observing Jesus forgiving this man's sin, they are just in total disbelief. They can't believe that Jesus has the audacity to do this. Why? Because it's blasphemous. That is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? How dare you do that? And you know what? They're absolutely right. No one can forgive sins but God alone. So if this man, Jesus, is forgiving sins, what is He doing? In essence, what He is doing is He is claiming to be God. So they're saying, blasphemer. You're you're committing blasphemy. Unless it's true. If it's true, then that's not blasphemy. That's just truth. But they didn't even consider that an option. That's not even an option to them. Because for them, God is unknowable. God is unreachable. God is transcendent. We don't even dare to pronounce His name. When we get to it through the Scriptures, we skip it. Right, So when you get to the, the name Yahweh, they skip it. They don't say His name when they're reading the Scriptures. And it, let's t- take it a little bit further. The Essenes, the sect that John the Baptist was a part of out in Qumran, and they found that's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, whenever they came to the, the name of God, they would write His name down, they would put their writing utensils down, and they would go take a ritual bath in the mikveh bath, get all clean and bathe, come back out, and then start writing again because they had this great reverence for the name of God. So, if you got to a passage that had God's name in it like several times, those were some clean guys. You know, they just kept coming in and out and in and out. And this is, I shake their hand. So, his name, God's name, he is revered. And, and this guy who was an illegitimate child, whose mom, who's your dad? You know, who's your daddy? Right? Like, so, they, they're like, your mom's a scandalous woman. Who who knows who your dad is? In fact, the dad that you claim is your dad, he's a like nobody. He's just some carpenter guy. Some guy from Galilee. He's a nobody. And and you're a nobody. Who, where were you educated? All of us, we, we're from all the good schools. Here here's some guys from Galilee, which isn't the, the good schools. It, but the guys from Jerusalem are here. And they, they're all here. And they're like, no way. Who are you? You're you're a nobody. And so, I don't know if you've, you guys have ever thought about this, but the paralytic guy that was put down He's just laying there, right? And and Jesus and those guys are having this conversation and they're saying, blasphemy and uh, who can do this besides God? And I can just imagine the guy who's like signaling to his friends he, he can't move, right? He's a paralytic, he's like, get me up, get me up, get me up, get me out of here. And he's just hopeless. And those guys are like, you're too heavy, man. You're just totally dead weight. You're not even helping us. You're just going to lie there. You're there. And he's just like, this is so awkward. These guys are just yelling back and forth. And I'm just lying here. This is so weird. Why did you guys break the guy's house and let me down here? Anyway, continue on in Luke 5, verse 22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, He answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise and walk? What's easier to say? What do you think? Not what's easier to do, but what's easier to say? Obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Isn't that obvious? Because you can't verify that. I can say that to you. Your sins are forgiven. How do you prove it? You cannot empirically prove that your sins are forgiven. But if you say to rise and walk is easier, that's not true. Because if you say rise and walk and you don't, well, empirically, there's proof that you don't have authority to do that. So there's no proof there. You, you can't tangibly verify that your sins are forgiven like you can tangibly verify that you can rise and walk. So there's an empirical proof as witnesses with your own eyes that you can attest to seeing a former paralytic rise and walk. So it is much easier to say, your sins are forgiven. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately He rose up before them and picked up what He had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and they were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. If Jesus was able to say the more difficult thing, rise and walk, And that came to fruition. Doesn't it make sense that he could say the easier thing, and that is true? That comes to fruition. That's the easier thing. I said the harder thing, and that's true. So if I say the easier thing, that's true. I'm proving that to you guys. I can forgive sins. And so Jesus used this opportunity as a declaration of his divine authority, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Verse 24, Luke chapter 5. Now forgiveness is at the core of the Gospel. We need forgiveness. You and I have been born with a sin nature. You're like, oh, how can that be? A baby's just born and there's no sin nature. You are born sinners. If you don't believe it, just wait till you have children. You do not have to teach them to lie. You do not have to teach them to steal. They automatically do it. Automatically. All three of mine have done that. Right? And so here we are and and what did the angel of the Lord say to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 verses 20 through 21? Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For He will save His people from their sins. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. It's it's a need that all of us need, even though some of us may deny that need. It's something that we all need. And this is not an intellectual problem. This is a problem of the will. This is a moral problem. And so the challenge continues for those who deny that they need forgiveness, even though you in fact do. Do. The degree in which you and I realize our need of forgiveness is the extent in which we understand the Gospel. So if you come to regeneration week after week listening to the Gospel and you just walk out week after week unchanged in your realization that you're in need of forgiveness from your sin, I encourage you to just keep coming. Keep coming. Because I am praying for you. Maybe I don't know you by name. Some of you I do. Maybe I don't know you by face, but some of you I do. I am praying for you, and I am hoping for you that you will one day realize these things. I was talking to a person, because I, sometimes I need these encouraging things, and so I was talking to this gal about her testimony, and she shared with me how she got saved eight months ago, And actually, a person from this church years ago, met her at a gym. And was talking to her. And that person has been praying for her every day. And she moved away. The person that introduced her to regeneration moved away. Gave her her old Bible. And so she was really moved by it. And she's been studying that same Bible. And so eight months ago, after years of praying for this person every day. And to put her on the spot, she's getting baptized next week. That's who it is. She shared with me the story that God is working in our church. It's not just made-up stuff. Like, these people are right before us. God is a long-suffering God. God is a God of justice. And He loves you so much that He sent His only Son to die for you so that she is not guilty of her sins any longer. She is cleansed. If she accepts that by faith, which she has, and it's the same invitation to you that if you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are cleansed of those sins, and no matter how hard you try on your own, you can't earn that forgiveness. That forgiveness is a gift from God. Because God is just, you are accountable for your sins. Forgiveness is a gift given to you in faith, where God Himself came in the form of man, in Jesus, who died for you on the cross to pay the price of sin. Your sin. It wasn't His sin. He sinned less. And then He rose from the dead to show you that there is a victory over sin. Not just death, but sin. And so this was the problem for the religious leaders in Jesus' day. They couldn't accept the fact That God was such a loving God who desired to save sinners. They just figured, oh, He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you know what? We're in. Because we are part of the right lineage. We're part of the right people. You know, God came and the promises are for us. That land is for us. Everything's for us. Forgetting that it is in God's character to love no matter how messed up we can be, even us Gentiles. That it's for us. And God is a God of redemption. He loves freeing the captive. He loves saving the lost. He loves redeeming the most unworthy, giving sight to the blind, healing the broken, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked. He loves being God. But the scribes and the Pharisees were more interested in just kind of like creating their own little club where they study their own Scriptures and do things for themselves and and all this kind of stuff and being insulated, just like many churches today. It's not really all that different, right? There's some churches out there that's just the same thing. It's just a club. Take care of our own thing. Let's have our own groups for our own people. Let's do our own thing for our own people. And they're not getting the Gospel out there. They're not getting the Word of God out there. Let us not forget that Jesus was hanging out with sinners. Right? He wasn't just saying hi, nice to know you, but He was going over to their house and He was hanging with them and He was eating with them and He was getting to know them. This past week, my eldest daughter and I, we stopped by a, a motel to visit this homeless couple that I've, I've known for over 10 years. He was at our church when we were out at this nightclub, and his name is Tom. And Tom is at the same freeway exit on 51st Street, you know, where the Arco is and the Big Sail Bettys and Genova and all that kind of stuff. He is there. If you see a guy with an oxygen tank, that is Tom. And Tom and Lily, Lily is completely blind, and she has been blind since 2004, I think, or 2002. And so they've been taking care of each other for all of these years, and and his health is just going downhill. And I I bumped into him, and I was on my way to pick up my daughter at a camp, and uh, my gas gauge was at empty. And I was like, oh man, i got to get my daughter. Sorry, Tom, I can't stop by. But are you going to be here for a while? And he said, yeah, I'm going to be here. I said, I'll be back. I'm going to come back. And so I went to pick up my daughter, and I came back, and and there was Tom. And Tom was telling me, you know what, I I need to raise $60 a day in order to pay for this motel room. And so I've I've raised it today. And I was like, oh, that's great. He's like, yeah, you're going to pay the difference. I was like, okay, I'll pay the difference. So he got in the car. And he said, "You know what you would never you would never know, but you, when these when these black kids come up with their cars and their bases thumping and all that stuff, you know those kids are the best ones they 're the only ones that give me twenty dollar bills and so today, I got two of them, two of them came up to me, and they gave me two twenty dollar bills and so you know i don 't have to stay out here all day long it 's one o'clock and i 'm ready to call it a day. And Tom can only take six steps before he's out of breath and he has to recover and then take six steps. And and so he's a couple miles away from this freeway exit. And so gave him a ride back to his motel room. Well, first he wanted Carl's Jr. So we went to Carl's Jr. first and we got lunch and picked up lunch for him and Lily. And then we went there and it's payday. So Tom's really mindful because I got my little girl with me and Tom's like, you know what, it's payday and at our motels and the motels all along the street, it's a bad time to be here. Because during payday, that's when all the prostitution's happening in all these rooms. And that's when all the drinking and all the drugs start happening because people are, have money. They got paid. They got their SSI checks. They got all this stuff. And this is where all the transactions are happening. So you guys can't stay here very long. Like, thank you, Tom, for that heads up. And so we, we went into the hotel room. And here we are eating Carl Jr. and all this kind of stuff. And here's my daughter with them. And my daughter's kind of wondering, like, oh, I thought Dad only hangs out at church. And this is a really big eye opener for her. And so we're there, and, and then we pray for them. We pray for Tom, we pray for Lily, and we're hanging out with them. And I think we find Jesus in the church. I really do think that. But I also think there's a higher likelihood that we find Jesus in the wrong places with so called wrong people, that we find Jesus in those places. And continuing on in Luke chapter 5 verse 27, after this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And as a father, this is part of my discipleship to my daughter. And this is part of me showing her that's more than just kind of like church. We we gotta be Jesus hands and feet out there to minister to the sick, to minister to those who are sinners and are in need of repentance, and they need to hear the gospel. Now, can you and I admit and confess that we are sinful? The religious leaders in Jesus' day could not do this. And since that time to our text in chapter 20, the scribes and the Pharisees' hostility towards Jesus continued to grow. The opposition continued to grow and they tried to entrap Him with these questions and scenarios looking to just pray at the very moment that He said something wrong or He did something against the law. And so here we are in our text tonight, Luke chapter 20, verse 20, with that background. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. These guys got so desperate that they started going undercover. They just started coming up with this clandestine operation, thinking that they'd catch Jesus off guard. Because you know what? Hey guys, every time we approach Jesus, we're in our garb. I mean, we're telegraphing our attack, right? I mean, we're coming in here with our our scribe outfits, and our Pharisee outfits, and our elder outfits. We are going ninja style now. We are going. He's not going to recognize anybody. We're just going to go. We're going to play dumb. And you're just going to blend in with the crowd. And you're going to ask this question, and we are going to nail Jesus. Why? Why all this effort? Why are they so determined to get rid of Jesus? Why do they want to kill him so badly? What was it that Jesus did that deserved death? Giving value to women and children? feeding people, uh, healing people, changing people's lives, feeding the hungry. What's wrong with what Jesus has been doing? That He deserved death. Well, these religious leaders knew that Jesus could only be a couple of things. He is either who He claimed to be. He is indeed Messiah. So not merely a person, but someone that they would actually need to submit to and follow. Or, He was not, and based off of everything that he was doing and claiming, he's a lunatic. And he is not a safe person to our faith. He is not a good person. So, if he is not this, we need to get rid of him. See, Jesus doesn't present himself to be a way to God. That's not what he does. Jesus presents himself to be the way to God. And the offense to the religious leaders back then is not all that different from the offense that people have towards Jesus today. See, it's okay to to present Jesus as a way to God in our contemporary society. But don't you dare say that Jesus is the way. Because when you say that Jesus is the way here in our world, in our society, those are fighting words. People do not like that. People want to believe that there are many ways to God and to declare that he is the way that is highly offensive and people look at us as highly arrogant. How can you claim that he is the way? But the thing is is that we don't claim. The Bible claims. The Bible is the authority. The Bible claims, not us. And so these guys wanted to kill Jesus because Jesus himself declared himself to be the way, not a way. The way, just like many who are hostile towards Christianity today and would like nothing better than to see it disappear from the face of the earth because I can't believe you guys, you're so narrow-minded. I can't believe you. You think that you have all the answers. But we're not the ones declaring this. Jesus declared this. Jesus declared to the world that He is the way. And people don't like that. Jesus claimed to be God. Not just a philosopher, not just a teacher, not just a good guy. He claimed to be God, the way. And so they are saying, you're saying that you're God. Yes, kill him. Let's kill him. But the thing is, is that they couldn't prove that he wasn't. They couldn't prove that. So now, you know what, we got to play these spy games now. We've got to do this kind of more secretively. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Now what they said was absolutely true. But what they were saying was not meant to be a compliment, and it was a way to kind of set Jesus up for their question. See, their motive is not pure. It's not good. Their intention is to corner Jesus and to lead Him to answer their question in a way that could get Him into a lot of trouble. And we do this all the time, don't we? Right? We do this when we're trying to build a case for ourselves so that we can win. Win an argument. Win a discussion. Win a debate. And we say things like, you're a smart guy. right? Or we say, um, you know... Uh, you're, you're you're an honest guy, and you kind of preface things so that you can win, right? You wouldn't hit a guy with glasses, right? So I, you know, I don't want to get hit, so I preface these things. You wouldn't hit a guy with glasses, so we do this all the time. So we preface our arguments with statements that will work in our favor, and so it was with these guys setting up Jesus with these flattering statements. Right? You're you're a truth teller. You're no partiality. You are a great teacher. But they are actually ill-intentioned flatteries to set Jesus up for this question: Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Because you know you're truthful. You're honest. You show no partiality. What do you think about this? And they're not even asking Jesus an open-ended question. They want Jesus to answer with a simple yes or no. Because whichever way Jesus answered, He'd be in hot water. He'd be in trouble. And if He didn't answer the question, then He would just appear like He's dodging the question. And He is not truthful. He is not a good teacher. And He doesn't show partiality. So they're putting Him in a corner. So here they are thinking... We got him. We got him. Because if he answers yes, we've got the people back on our side because the people hated the Roman oppression. They hate those guys. Those guys are not treating them well. And so if Jesus answers yes, we got them back on our side. If he answers no, well, there's Roman soldiers right there. We'll just go let them know that Jesus does not want them to give their money to Caesar. Caesar. And so we're rid of him. So either the people will come against him or the Roman authorities will come against him. We got him. We've got him. There's no way out. But he perceived their craftiness and he said to them, Jesus is brilliant. Jesus is just, he knows what they're up to. So Jesus asked for this Roman coin. It's called a denarius and it's a silver coin with Caesar's image on it. And so Jesus is proving to them, We are under Roman occupation. Right? Caesar's face is right there. Caesar rules. And everyone there knew it. Everyone knew that they were under Caesar's authority in this land. So he got this coin and he said, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And so these guys are just salivating, right? They're like, oh man. He's just trying to buy time. Where's the coin? Show me the king. Yeah, whatever. Come on, just say it. Either way, people or Romans, we got you. We got you. And so obviously it's Caesar's. So who knows? These guys must be thinking like, oh, the people are going to turn on him. This is so great. He's he's leaning towards Caesar. And so he's saying, so this is Caesar's kingdom, and wherever Caesar ruled, there was his image on a denarius. And this denarius was used within the entire empire, the only Roman currency that is accepted within the Roman empire, or different currencies may be accepted if Caesar deemed that acceptable, but nothing else. And it's the same everywhere else in the world, right? You you can't go to the farmer's market and and try to buy some stuff with some euros, right? You You can't use a euro, not the... Greek sandwich, the, the, the currency, the euro, right? And so you can't do that. And you can't go to a restaurant and use a Japanese yen. Right? Like, oh, yeah, we're going to uh, gumbai or whatever. Here, Japanese yen. Even if it's a Japanese restaurant, they would be like, give me, give me money. The, the yen doesn't work here. Right? So you, you can't do that. And try buying gas with the British pound. Right? You're like, but this is British petroleum. Why can I not use the British pound? It just doesn't work. Now, on the other hand, if you tithe here or if you give offerings here in other currencies, perfectly fine. Perfectly fine. We take it. We will take it. Now, the city of Oakland doesn't take Swiss francs. Right? Try putting in a Swiss franc into one of those parking meters. It's not going to work. It doesn't recognize that. So it has to be the currency of a particular nation or what the nation deems acceptable. So we were just in Israel last month, and the vast majority of places accept the U.S. dollar. They take it. They accept it. So there's cases like that where they do. But if you flip it around, if I go to Blue Bottle in Jack London Square, and I use some of my shekels, and I try to pay with that, they were looking at me like, what is this? What is this? This is not acceptable here. We don't take shekels. Now if you find out that they do, let me know because I have a lot left over from last month and I'm, I don't know what to do with it. So, so it has to maybe I'll tithe it. We accept it. So it has to be the currency of the particular nation, right? So he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And these guys are thinking, what did he just say? He's supposed to answer yes or no. He's supposed to answer yes or no. That's it. What is this? Render to Caesar what the Caesar's and God to God's. Just say yes or no. What is this? All this stuff. They thought that they had him. They thought that, oh man, we were so good. Our, our, our question is so good. We cornered him. We had him. But Jesus simply pointed out to them that, you know, since we're under Caesar's rule, we have to pay to Caesar what is his. Right, and the use of the Roman currency and, and us paying taxes, we have to honor Caesar as ruler of the empire here. But, he says, remember, that even in paying Caesar what is Caesar's, don't forget that the ultimate loyalty is to God. Our ultimate loyalty is to God because we are both citizens of earth and we are citizens of heaven. And so we are in Christ but we're also in the United States, right? So ultimately our home is in heaven and we are citizens of heaven, but we also live here physically in the United States and we're citizens here. And if you are not a citizen here, we have citizenship classes on Saturday. So join us and we will help you get to that point, okay? So we as citizens of the United States, we have responsibility to our nation and to our state. Because don't all of us pay federal taxes and state taxes? Now, if you don't, please do not raise your hands or shake your head at me or anything. I do not want to know. That is between you and God and the IRS. Okay? Just don't implement. Or what was that word? Don't, don't something yourselves. Whatever. Incriminate. I knew it was some I word. But we have responsibilities and duties as citizens of the United States. Now, men... Men between the ages of 18 and 25, and if you've passed this, you've already done this. You and I had a responsibility to register for the Selective Services when we were 18. Again, do not tell me if you didn't do that. Just keep your hand between you and the federal government now. But we had a responsibility to do that as men, as citizens in the United States. So, we have responsibilities to our nation, to our state, to our respective counties, cities, neighborhoods, communities. We obey the governing laws of the land, of where we live. We submit to God's laws as well, and we submit to the laws of the land where we live. Now, these guys wanted to corner Jesus into just saying yes or no. Just say yes or no, because then we have you. You know, if you say yes, then you know what? We don't have to do anything because you will be the target of the zealots because the zealots hate the Romans and you even have a zealot inside your inner circle as a disciple. He'd kill you, right? And so we don't have to do that if you say yes. If you say yes, we got you because all the people are, are there and we don't even have to worry about it. If you say no, we don't have to worry about you anymore because you know. if you say no, I'm going to tap that Roman soldier on the shoulder and say this guy doesn't want to pay Caesar his due. He's saying we don't have to pay. Really? You're arrested, you're thrown in jail, and he's rid of. But no, Jesus does not do that. Jesus said, you live in the Roman Empire, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but your soul, that's God's. And your life is to be rendered to God. Caesar has his image on the currency, so render to him what is his. You are made in the image of God, so render your life to God we are to obey the secular authorities and the laws thereof as long as they are not in contradiction to the law of God. Now, I don't have time to get into all the issues between church and state debates this evening, but let's just use something as an example, like the Bay Bridge. Say the Bay Bridge is built and it is a mandate, it is a law by the state of California that we are to worship the Bay Bridge. That contradicts the law. That contradicts the law of God. I will not do it. I will go to jail. That's not something I'm going to do. What I will do though is I will be thankful for it. I will continue to pay my fast track. I will continue not to violate the carpool lane. I will bring three or more people. I will go to the casual car. I will stay within the speeding limits. I will do all that, but I will not worship that. That steps over the line. But the other stuff does not contradict the laws of God, I will continue to do those things. So let us understand that as followers of Jesus, we don't make the subject of one's political freedom the top priority in our life. Right? The disciples of Jesus do not make the concern of her or his political freedom the number one priority in their life. So we're thinking about, oh, you know, we need democracy all over the world. We need equal rights. We need all this kind of stuff. Is that a biblical mandate? I don't think it is. I, I, I don't read that. So why are we fighting about that all the time? Why are we trying to fund the government to do that all the time? Because is that a biblical mandate? See, how many people make political freedom as it relates to the church a bigger issue than it really is? Right, making demands and requests for various freedoms that aren't necessarily contradicting the Bible. So many of the things that we fight about, they're actually preferences. They are not biblical mandates. We, we have to really consider what is being violated and what are we uh, forcing down people's throats whether it is in contradiction to the Bible or not. Now if it contradicts the Bible, then yes. Yes. Yes, that let's make a big deal out of it. Like this Proposition thirty-five thing. Yeah, make a big deal out of it. That is such an injustice. Right? So so yeah, we make a bigger deal out of it. But if it is not, if if that certain proposition, if that law, if that cry for democracy around the world, if that is not, then don't make a big deal out of it. That is just a political stance, that is just a preference. For example, do our laws prevent us from preaching the gospel? They don't, right? They don't. So, do we have a law that we can only have one child, and that if we have more, the mother will be jailed, she will be forced to have an abortion, she will be fined, and then she will be forced to undergo sterilization? See, that I find as unbiblical. That's not biblical to do that to somebody. So that is something that we are to fight about, to stand against. You guys remember uh, Chen Guangcheng, the Chinese civil rights activist? He escaped from house arrest. He was under house arrest for 19 months because he was bringing this issue of forced uh, sterilization, forced abortion of women who had more than one child in China. And so he escaped. uh, He went to a U.S. embassy in Beijing and and he was there. Now, that guy is blind, That dude is blind. And he escaped from house arrest. He sustained a foot injury. He he broke his foot. And between where his village was and to Beijing, he fell over 200 times in that journey. That is a bad dude. I want to meet that guy. That guy's a bad dude. See, we don't have a law like that for us to take a stand because if that law was here, yeah! I would, I would tell the church, let's take a stance against something like that. That is very unjust, and that is against the Bible to force people to do that. Now, do our laws demand or require anything of us in which, if we obey them or submit to them, will make us violate the law of God? And that's the question to ask. That's the lens, that's the filter to run through. Does not make us violate the law of God? And there are parts of the world where These types of laws exist right now, but let's be careful which laws we fight about. What we're trying to get out there. And so sure, there are laws that exist that we don't like. I know that. But do they violate the law of God? Now even under the most oppressive regimes like the ones that Jesus and His followers experienced under the Roman Empire, ask yourself this, did Jesus and His disciples fight that? They didn't. So as Christians, how come we're so mixed up in politics? And that government was so much more oppressive than what we experience. And so you think about the other types of regimes that are in existence today that are so hostile to Christians like North Korea or Iraq or Afghanistan or Saudi Arabia, Somalia, all these different types of countries that that they're so oppressive. And we're trying to battle on the political front I don't think they're battling there, right? The political freedom is not the indicator that Christians are living correctly. Do our brothers and sisters living for Jesus all over the world in places that do violate their political freedoms, do they have it all wrong? I don't think so. They render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And while in their heart they freely render to God what is God's, even under the most oppressive circumstances and governments. And our battle is not one on the political front. Our battle is on the spiritual front. We were battling powers and principalities. That's what we're battling. Verse twenty six. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer they became silent. Silence. All that undercover work, all that planning of entrapment, and all these brilliant minds getting together, like what question can we ask to get that guy? What do we have to do to get that guy? Failed. All these brilliant minds together can't bring Jesus down. Jesus is brilliant. He didn't have the time to come up with this plan, right? These guys are are scheming, and they're, they're Trying to get the perfect question, and who knows how much time they spent to find. Oh yes, we got it. Go get him! And all oh, Jesus is like, give me a coin. That's it. All done. They're like, what? What? Because Jesus is so logical. He's so reasonable. He's so convincing and clear. And they had, they had nothing on Him. And it's the same today. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow. And if, if a skeptic would just invest some time and effort to research Jesus, they would find Him. But I think there are too many who don't want to even uh, broach that subject because I, I, I'm not sure why, but the evidence is so plentiful it's been over 2,000 years since Jesus physically walked this earth and the gospel of Jesus is continuing to spread and there are some who continue to hear about Jesus who still haven't turned their life over to him even though he loves you so much even though he's so full of compassion for you and even though there are volumes upon volumes of evidence that demands you to make a verdict. The Bible is crystal clear about Jesus and Jesus is calling you. He's not calling you to religion. He's not calling you to a statement of beliefs. He's not calling you to a philosophy. Jesus is not even calling you to church. Jesus is calling you to Himself. A relationship. He is calling you to God. Now imagine the silence the religious leaders had in verse 26. And in that moment there were some in that crowd who heard the call of Jesus and I'm hoping and I'm praying that in the silence that is within you, there's a calling that you are hearing from Jesus. Because the degree in which you and I realize our forgiveness is the extent in which we understand the Gospel. See, my job as a pastor isn't to convince you that you need a Savior. There are people that are way smarter than me. Some of them are dead now. That give you volumes upon volumes of evidence, and so people think, "Oh, Christians are so stupid you 're believing in a myth and you 're believing in faith. Are they claiming to be smarter than Isaac Newton? I mean seriously, how can you make an argument that it 's intellectual? Are, are you saying that you 're smarter than Pasteur? I mean, come on. You're talking about the greatest scientists of all time. And and there's a claim, oh, it's not scientific. Galileo was a Christian. Are you saying you're smarter than him? I mean, come on, you're so arrogant. It's not based off of science. Who are the greatest scientists to ever live? Christians. They're the ones that have all this stuff. Look it up. Look at their spiritual backgrounds. Look at them. So it's not an intellectual thing. It's a moral thing. It's one of the will. Right? So, my job as a pastor isn't to convince you that you need a Savior. All the stuff is there, all the evidence is already there that you need a Savior. The Holy Spirit does that. Thank God for that, because if it's up to me, you guys are in trouble. I don't have that apologetic for you. And I can give you all the, the reasons in the world that that doesn't change your heart. The Holy Spirit is the one who convinces you that you need a Savior. And He's the one who converts. See, my job is much more simple. I just have to tell you that Jesus is the Savior. I just have to present that to you. And that's all of our jobs, right? That's what we all do. Isn't that so simple? And so some of you are thinking, so why are you getting paid for what you do? I just have to say thank you. That's all. Thank you. But isn't that great? Right? You and I do not have the responsibility for what happens within somebody. We have the responsibility just to tell people. spread the word tell people who Jesus is spread the seed out what is the seed the seed is the word of God to throw it out all over the place and to nurture it as much as we can but everything else for that seed to take root that's up to God thank God right thank God if the seed takes root and grows that's God. You and I don't have credit for it. Thank God for that too, right? We get such big heads like, oh, look at me. I brought these people to the Lord. Look at me. I'm such a great evangelist. right? We don't do that. See, you and I don't take credit for that. We have been given the dignity to participate in the life that the seeds birth because we helped it to have a chance. And that's a marvelous partnership to have with God. But isn't it great not to have responsibility on us to ensure that the seed takes root? That's so freeing. We just spread it. We just throw it. We nurture it. But everything else, that's God. Now if you're here, you've received the seed. You got it. I gave it to you. And some of you are like, what's the seed still? Sorry if I didn't present it all that great or whatever if you didn't understand it. But it's given to you even if it's not like a nice seed. You still got it. So you got the seed. And so where are you in relation to that seed being planted? Do you have more undercover work to do? Do you have some more trick questions in you that you want to ask Jesus? And, and you know what? The, the problem is not intellectual, as I have said. Whatever questions you have for God, whether it's philosophical, scientific, whatever it may be, those questions have been answered by people much smarter than me. And you can look it up. Or you can ask me, and it's not that I thought about them, I've read those things. So if I can't give you the question, I can refer you to someone who has done that research and that has done those studies and you can look that up. It is not an intellectual problem. Whatever kind of intellectual questions you have, there's an answer for that. And I can direct you to that. So it's not an intellectual problem. If it was, we would have no need for God. Because if God could be outsmarted, if God did not have answers to your questions, there's no need for a God. It's a problem of the will. It's, it's a moral problem. That's what it is. It's a heart problem. Now, there are only two options for rulers of your life. One option is, it's God. And the other option is, something else. Whatever it is. Whatever idol that is. That's the second option. That's it. There's only two. God or not God. That's it. Because if it's God, you're on your way to heaven. Because heaven is essentially being in the presence of God. Second option is not God. Absence of God. The absence of God is essentially hell. That's essentially what hell is. It's the absence of God. So you either have the presence of God or you have the absence of God. It's only those two things. Now if you hear God calling you this evening in the silence that is within you, I plead with you not to harden your heart. Because every time you harden your heart, it is another layer that is calloused against the Holy Spirit entering it. Every time. If you hear the Holy Spirit prompting you, tonight is the time to respond to that call. Please do not continue to harden your heart. Tonight is the night for you to receive salvation from Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for Your Word. God, You're brilliant and You're so wise and so discerning why we don't submit to You all the time, knowing that You are all-knowing and all-powerful is beyond reason. And yet, I fall guilty of that too. So I pray, Lord, that You would help us to humbly submit to Your will. Help us to be able to discern and have wisdom to how You are leading us to live our lives. And I pray, Lord, for those who don't have a relationship with You, who are not saved, ask God that their hearts and their minds would be softened to receive from you the gift of salvation. God, thank you for that gift. In Jesus' name, amen.